Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Banner and Cook from Cafeteria coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. She is the owner of Avondale Food and Wine in Montrose, Mary Clarkson. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing all right this week, Eric. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. And I think topic number one is going to dominate our conversation today. And that is that Governor Greg Abbott has allowed restaurants to operate at 50% of their capacity, and he has also allowed bars to open and operate at 25% of their capacity. And I want to kind of just start with you as a restaurant owner. Mm-hmm. You made the decision to increase Avondale's capacity from 25% to 50%. And and so my question to you is really straightforward. Uh why did you decide you were ready for that, and how has that gone? I mean, we decided we were ready for it based off of our customers' reaction. When we opened at 25%, we took out tables. We also made sure that we spaced according to all the requirements. We also kind of did a center barrier of tables um, and like a presentation from our grocer that we feature to help kind of divide the room, but visually make it still look appealing. Um, Bumping up to 50% was just listening to our customers and know that we were doing things like we should and we were respectful of of the social distancing and that our, our customers felt comfortable dining with us. If we didn't think that was the case, we would have kept it at 25%. I will say that the 50% capacity, I think a lot of people aren't ready to dine out yet. They still want food to go and that type of thing. But I I think having a patio um, helps customers feel a lot better. Yeah. I mean, one of the requirements for operating to 50% is that you are still required to maintain six feet of separation between the tables. So yes. at, at some point, I sort of expect that will have more to do with limiting a restaurant's capacity because there's only so many tables you can fit at six feet apart. Absolutely. Um, we've maintained that distancing on the patio as well. My understanding from reading Governor Abbott's requirements is that patios can be seated at 100%. But I mean... I still, I still think the six feet distancing is what people want to see right now. Who knows how long that'll last? But if it makes our customer base feel happy, I would rather, you know, be able to operate at whatever percentage makes our customers feel safe. Right. So you've you've now had a weekend to sort of operate at fifty percent. Um, how did that go? What was the reaction from your customers like? I think customers are really paying attention and listening to other people as far as what places have you been that you feel are doing a good job of, you know, the social distancing, the capacity, the spacing, the cleaning, sanitization, face mask, all of that. I think people are really paying attention to that. I was speaking to 
Bobby Hugel, um, I guess yesterday and telling him, you know, that I had been to a couple of places, uh, Volcano and uh, West Alabama Ice House, where they were being very respectful as far as bars is hand, sanita- hand sanitizing upon entry and spacing and face mask while you order. And he's like, great, I'll go visit those places now. So I think everybody is talking to each other and we're, you know, taking account not only as owners, but what places we feel safe. Right. So I, I do want to shift the conversation a little bit to bars because the the requirements for bars, even beyond the 25% capacity, are, I would say, burdensome and maybe detrimental to the things that I personally like about going to bars. Like, like sitting at a bar? Sitting at the bar, right? <laughs> you are not allowed... You are not allowed to sit at the bar, which I understand, like logically, intellectually, I understand because that promotes sitting at a table at the bar. Sitting at a table within a bar is better for social distancing. It, it means less likely that you'll be face to face with a bartender or, you know, too close to another customer. But, but you know, that, that like it makes it, you know, people go to bars to to meet people right if you you can't and they, and they go to bars to, they go to bars to talk to their favorite bartenders right so you can't just like you can't pop into a bar solo and like see that attractive stranger you know three <laughs> three bar stools down you know strike up a conversation which is part of the fun of going to a bar frankly yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. I yesterday ventured out for the first time to a bar bar, um, as I would call it, Penny Quarter next to Anvil. And I told myself, I rode my bike from my house. I told myself that I was going to go to one or the other. And I was kind of hungry. So I was like, I'm going to go to Penny Quarter. Um, but, you know, Anvil seating capacity is 17 right now, uh, which is small and it's booths and high tops only. And I, and I adore these bartenders and not being able to sit in front of them takes away from the experience, but I'm still going to go support them. So um, I think it's hard and it makes it harder to pop in because if a bar like that can only seat 17 people, um, you know, capacity fills up really quickly and and people are probably not going to, you know, they're going to stay for a drink or two. So it might be an hour before you could you get in. Yeah. Now, I I will say I do think this is a beneficial situation for patio bars because they they are not limited in the same way. Now, they do have to maintain some separation between tables. And I personally would not want to go anywhere that's super crowded. But, you know, if you're Kirby Ice House and you've got the better part of a half acre backyard to space people out in, then you know, this is your moment, except it's starting to get really hot and unpleasant outside. Um, or even like eight row Flint, right? They're, they're not seating people at the bar, but, but they have that big open patio and they can see people within, you know, they've moved tables around and spaced things apart and, or even, you know, present company. I drove past there this weekend. They had what looked like a, a good crowd, but again, spaced apart, seated, you know, you're not allowed to stand around drinking in a bar right now. Uh, dancing is "quote unquote" discouraged, so it's it's a challenge. I, you know, I meeting up with friends to go to a bar. Yes, that you know that can still happen. And if and you know the situation I was in a couple of weeks ago where I had dinner 
at a restaurant and then we weren't quite ready to wrap up, but we didn't want to stay there. So we went to another restaurant, right? Now we could go to a bar. That's the logical thing is to go to a bar. So I think in general, though, just for me personally, unless it's a bar that I think is being super respectful of these guidelines, I don't really want to go to a patio bar with 300 strangers. I don't know on it, but that's just, that's just me. You know, I'm, I have people in my family that are, um, more prone to COVID-19 than the general population. So I'm also trying to be extra cautious. Well, and, and I actually, I had that experience this weekend. I, I went to, uh, a pop-up at Killen's Barbecue, and yes, we were we were outside, and there's plenty of space between the tables on their patio, but the group I was with, you know, was people from, people I hadn't seen in a while, people from different households, you know, we weren't wearing masks, we were close to each other, I, you know, I, like, by rights, I probably should have gotten in my car and driven home, but having, having come from Montrose to Pearland for barbecue, I... I was uh, food motivated, so I, I stayed. I stayed in, I stayed for lunch. Okay, well. But, but, yeah. there, but, but people do have to be mindful of those situations, right? You have to be conscientious about where you go and who you interact with and plan accordingly. And Yeah, I'm keeping my circle small. Just, you know, it makes me feel safer. And, you know, I want to be safe for my customers. So it's a little different for me maybe than you. Well, I, I mean, I think we all have people in our lives that we want to be able to interact with without necessarily, you know, and feel like we're not going to get anybody sick. I mean, that is, you know, I, I am I am of two minds about this disease, which is that the, the recommendations from experts keep changing. I mean, just last week, the CDC said, you know, transmission via contact with surfaces is not as likely as they initially thought. So all that disinfecting of your groceries and worrying about touching your mail and all that stuff, that's that's not as important. You know, it's more important to just wash your hands regularly and, and wear a mask in public settings. And so I'm trying to be very mindful of that. But but what I mean is that, you know, when the when the recommendations keep changing, when our understanding of this disease keeps changing, it's hard to know what the correct thing to do is at any given moment. So it's, it's just a little bit tricky. Yeah. No, I, I, there's no easy answer right now. I just think everybody has to decide what's best for them and where they feel safe and comfortable. Right. But so with that said, as I sort of move us through this topic, are there places that you have dined at where you have felt good about, the practices and the the distancing and the sanitation places that you have eaten at that you feel comfortable at and would recommend other people consider based on your experience. Um, you know, I've I've been to both La Lucha and State of Grace, which are owned by the same group, uh, Ford Fry. At La Lucha, I ate on the patio, um, and I, I will say this: like in general, I've been where available, I've been eating on a patio, um, and La Lucha's patio is really pretty uh, and shaded and everything else. But I felt really safe there. I didn't even have to go inside to get a table. They had moved the hostess stand outside um, and paper menus and, you know, felt very, very, very safe. Uh, the waiters were wearing face masks, that kind of thing. 
Um, I've always enjoyed La Lucha. This was no exception. State of Grace, I went uh, opening night, and um, they very quietly opened. So uh, the restaurant was definitely well under um, 50%, uh, but they wanted it that way. And I felt well cared for and taken care of and completely safe. I wasn't near another table. Um, so those are two that stand out to me. I did go to Kata for lunch. Um, Kata, Kata felt okay. I mean, it's a busy restaurant, even at 25 or 50%. So, you know, and it's indoors and everything else. I think they were doing a good job. Um, but you know, it had more people in it. I just, I'm kind of wary of high volume restaurants right now, I guess. Right. I, I also dined at Katarobata, uh, last week. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of with you. I mean, I, my dinner was extremely outstanding. I mean, it had been a long time since I had had a meal like that, obviously before, uh, restaurants closed down and there were some some off the menu specials that they recommended that were I mean there was a lobster roll that was kind of mind blowing like maybe one of the best things I've ever eaten there um, and there was a lot of space between the tables I felt you could really tell that they had taken the distancing requirements uh, very seriously what I was more conscientious of was the fact that none of like none of the other customers were wearing masks when they were moving around the dining room, right? Now, I understand that people don't wear masks while they're eating. That that makes sense to me. But but when they're going to the restroom or when they're entering the restaurant or leaving the restaurant, you know, I would like to see that if I'm going to be dining inside. That was not the case at Katarobata. And that's, that's like one of those kind of squishy comfort level things that, you know, people are going to have to decide for themselves. And I think a hard thing too, I, I mean, these business owners, I think a lot of them, you know, they're just like so grateful to have customers that I think some of them are maybe more or less willing to enforce stuff on their customers once they're seated at their table or as they come in. But, you right. know, I, if, it be, if it becomes the new norm, it, you, you don't, you won't even have to do that. Right. I do not expect restaurateurs or restaurant staff to get into confrontations with customers about mask wearing specifically. I, yeah. I just, I don't think that's productive. Uh, it's certainly <laughs> not good for, it's certainly not good for business. You know, it's, it's kind of one thing for a Costco employee to go viral for taking a guy's cart away because he's not wearing a mask. But I, I just, I don't think that's productive for restaurants. It's not really, it's not really in the protocols for hospitality. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I get not wanting to have that, um, conversation with people, but they're, you know, but it is, it is kind of a, it's kind of on the line between, you know, what, what customers should be doing. And of course, you know, this, the mask brain in general is, is such a, has become so contentious and, and you know, there's, there's people who will shame you for wearing one and people who will shame you for not wearing one. And it's just, it's a, it's, I, I, I never thought it would be like this. I never, I never thought a pandemic would, uh, would be a political issue. And yet here we are. Yeah. It seems to have turned into that. And I hate that. Um, I do feel fortunate that our customer base in general is very respectful and I don't think I'll have 
those kind of issues to the same tune as, you know, a large sports bar might or a really big chain restaurant or something like that. I mean, we've read about all these incidents online of people attacking somebody over having to wear a mask or not having to wear a mask entering a shop or a restaurant. It's like so ridiculous. I don't ever want to have to deal with that. Right. So let me end this on a slightly more positive note, because you mentioned that you went to La Lucha. Yes. I I also went to La Lucha separately. I did dine inside. And again, they, they basically what they did is they took the tables out of the middle of the dining room. So you're just kind of on the border. Um, a lot right. of separation between the tables, which felt very comfortable. It was very strange to see that big, beautiful bar without any bar stools around it. Uh, but of course, that is that is the current reality. Uh, but what I what I want to ask you about is what you thought of the new menu, because Chef oh. Bobby Matos has put in a whole bunch of of seafood dishes, and I had uh, grilled shrimp, grilled swordfish, um, a couple other things that were extremely delicious that I was, I I was really happy. with. I would love to tell you that I totally experimented with their new menu, but I did not. I did fried chicken. <laughs> uh. That's what I was craving. That's what I wanted. So that's what I got. Fried chicken and champagne. <laughs> well, so much for that part of the conversation. <laughs> I will say that uh, State of Grace has beefed up their beef offerings and have offered a whole bunch of new sticks. So like five or six different steaks that make up uh, kind of the center part of their menu and they have revamped uh, their whole menu. So much more, uh, many more meat options than just the seafood options that I think um, State of Grace is known for. So that was kind of nice to see that they took this time to rehash both their menu at La Lucha and State of Grace. Yeah, the State of Grace menu is a little bit strange to me because some of the staple dishes that have been on there for a really long time are gone like that sticky that sweet and sticky beef rib dunzo yeah, duck, carnitas. duck carnitas are gone the number of pastas has been diminished the enchilada is gone i mean they really i mean i won't say they like tore it up and started with a clean sheet but they definitely <laughs> they kind of did <laughs> they did to a certain extent i mean they they really just kind of it's a whole new state of grace and i i have not been there yet but looking at that menu um i am certainly intrigued and of course this you know, this is a time when I think people want kind of comforting, familiar fare. And in Houston, you know, steak certainly fits that bill. Yeah. So, you know, it makes sense to me. But I I do kind of hope that it's, to a certain extent, I do hope that it's temporary. Because I, I don't really need State of Grace to satisfy my steak cravings. <laughs> you don't know yet. <laughs> well, yeah, we should. I, I mean, I need to go there and eat a steak. But... <laughs> But I, I feel what you're saying for sure. But I had a I had a corn pasta dish um, there that was spectacular, and the service is always so good, and the ambiance, and I love that stuff. So kudos to them. All right, and then topic number two is I do just very briefly want to note that Bar Victor has reopened. <laughs> this is uh, this is on Montrose. It's in that little shopping center what uh, year is it eric is it 2020 are we in 2017 18 i'm so confused right right bar victor <laughs> opened in 2018 closed <laughs> about a year later in 2019 and is now back for 2020 uh for anyone who missed it the first time this is the old zim space uh on montrose boulevard between 
Richmond and the freeway. And it's it's a kind of a stylish, you know, dark lounge vibe. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I, I went a couple of times when it was open the first time. I, I won't I won't pretend that I particularly was sad that it closed. You weren't uh, a regular there? I, Shocks. Right. <laughs> Alas. Uh, um, the last the last bar that I was really excited about was Lottie Dottie and that that worked out very poorly for me. So I apparently I don't I don't know what works in bars. <laughs> but but Mary, let me let me put it to you briefly. Do you care that Bar Victor has reopened and will you go there? Uh, no, I don't care and no I won't go there. I'm going to take off my restaurateur hat and put on my real estate broker and attorney hat. And Steve Zimmerman, if you're listening, here's what you need to do. You need to scrap the whole block because you own the whole thing. And when you're done with your Heinz high rise at La Colombe d'Or, maybe go vertical with this site because this whole block has had its day. So scrape it, either sell it or joint venture it because whatever's going to go in here, not going to (laughs) work. All right. That does it for so- the news sorry. of the week. No, look, it's it's why we have you on the show. All right. That does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So, Mary, for our restaurants of the week, we get to do something we have not done since March, which is Talk about a dining experience that we had together at a new establishment. In this case, it is Sixes and Sevens. Mm-hmm. This is the new bar that replaced Next Door, which is the bar that was next to Rudyard's for the better part of 20 years. I talked about this with Linda Salinas uh, a few months ago when uh, this change was first announced. I noted at the time that Next Door Bar had... Uh, a pretty specific reputation. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, uh-huh. somewhat, somewhat controversial. I don't. I don't necessarily want to get into the ins and outs of it. I just said that you know people people went there to buy a product that was not necessarily related to the service of food or beverage at that establishment. It was something uh, not on the menu. It was something not on the menu, and I referred to it as a succulent. Mm. And okay. I'm just going to leave it there. Cool. So uh, I will I will find, well, you can, podcast listeners may recall that conversation. People who are new to the podcast can scroll through the archives and they can find where we talked about. Or you can just direct message Linda Salinas and ask her. <laughs> that, that's right. <laughs> um, so without getting into the history of Next Door Bar, let's just focus on sixes and sevens. Yeah. Um, Mary, what did you think? Okay, well, for honesty, I had never been to the previous bar, next door bar. I had been to Rudyard's. Um, So I don't even know what the space physically looked like uh, before. But walking in there yesterday, I think I beat you there by probably five, ten minutes. Um, The interior space is, we were there during daytime, uh, is light and bright. And they have these really cool kind of strip LED lights hidden behind these wood panels that they custom built and wood benches. It's really pretty. Um, the inner 1980s child that I am 
loves this space for all the multicolor experiences, and I bet it looks great at night. Uh, I started off with a daiquiri, and the daiquiri was perfectly made. It was delicious. And then we kind of dove into some food once you got there, and I'll, I'll wait for you to talk about the food. Right. So just briefly, the cocktails are by uh, the bartender who is a partner in the venture, Lacey Williams. She worked at Warren's for a long time. She was at the Pink Elephant Room. So she's got uh, a pretty devoted following. And it's basically like very well executed classic cocktails. Uh, I had an old fashioned. You and I split a hurricane. Um, You know, flavorful you know, artfully presented. It's it's kind of nice to just have like a good cocktail that had been a while since obviously it had been a while since I had been to a bar and had a, a cocktail made by a professional bartender. So so I I really appreciated that aspect of the space. Yeah. I mean the the decor is is really cool in the sense that there's these color changing panels on the tabletops and built into the walls. And so uh, somebody who saw it on my Instagram feed described it as a little bit Dance Dance Revolution, which kind of made me laugh. It has a definite, like, I would say 80s vibe to it. Kind of the coloring reminds me a little bit of Better Luck Tomorrow, but it's a more, it's not interactive. Like the customers can't influence how the colors change, but it's 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 that the colors are constantly changing is more engaging, I guess, is, is the best way to describe it. Yeah, it's very, um, it's mesmerizing. Like, it's really pretty. It's a pretty bar. And I don't oftentimes refer to bars as pretty places. I might say it's well-designed or whatnot, but this is both well-designed and, honestly, pretty. It's, it's attractive. Right. And then the chef, Anthony Callio, who, you know, most people may know from Pie Pizza, uh, but has been at Rudyard's for about a year. This is, a, this is a very elevated version of his food, and, and I would say something that is different than anything he has done before. So we had, we had three dishes. We had uh, roasted potatoes with guanciale. We had, uh, I, guess it was, I guess it was sous vide and then seared duck over orzo with radicchio and nectarines. Mm-hmm. And then we had Parmesan polenta with braised short rib. I mean, the this potatoes is potatoes and the guanciale was straight fire. <laughs> it was so yeah. good. Right. I mean, it's it's basically like loaded French fries, but taken up to like refined to take into uh, boarding school or that you know graduated from rice or whatever. You know, because the potatoes are roasted and sliced, the guanciale is uh, a more sophisticated smoked pork product than bacon, and it comes with this uh, really great aioli for dipping, just ties the whole thing together. I mean, that is the kind of perfectly salty, craveable bar snack that I think anyone would be very happy to eat. And then I was impressed by the duck. I mean, it, it it had all these different elements. It had you know, citrus and sweet and and the bitter from the radicchio and, and the fatty richness of the duck. It, just, it was all really nicely cooked. And it was 18 bucks, which is like maybe a lot for an entree in a bar. But 
I mean, find me a cheaper duck dish. You know what I mean? No, the all of the food was spectacular, and the price points were really right. The potato dish in Guanciale for eight dollars. Yeah, you can't beat a more. It's so flavorful, and such a filling little dish. Like, what a great bar dish! Salty, savory, really yummy. Right, and then we didn't order a charcuterie board, but they they have them, and they are very artfully. We saw one come out. Uh, very artfully presented with a lot of little house-made components to go with the meat and cheese. And, you know, I just, I I do think that's going to be a really popular offering for them. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's funny to me because it's bar food, but it's it's more than bar food. Like, if you wanted to have a hearty, full meal here, you could absolutely have that with multiple dishes that they offer. Right, and if you just want a burger and tater tots, you can go next door to Rudyard's. Right, they still, <laughs> they still do all of those things at Rudyard's. And it's the same chef for both, right? Yep, Anthony is running both kitchens. So. Okay, I haven't, I haven't uh, sampled the burger at Rudyard's yet, but I guess I will now. Yeah, and well, he's got a great chicken sandwich on there. He makes pizza. It's it's pretty comprehensive. It's uh, you know, Rudyard's has been kind of a bar with good food for. Uh, longer than I've been allowed to drink legally. So, uh, <laughs> you know, Anthony maintains that reputation. Uh, he's definitely put his own spin on the place, but uh, worthy of attention. Yay. Uh, and then we are running a little bit long, but have you had any really great takeout experiences in the last uh, week or so that you want to share with people? Um, you know, you and I both love Himalaya, so I have... Definitely been hitting uh, Himalaya for sure. Uh, and then, not that we can go there now, but I did do Dolce Vita uh, last week before they closed. All right. Uh, Mary Clarkson, before you get out of here, uh, anything you want to mention that's happening at Avondale Food and Wine? Oh my gosh. All the normal things I would like talk about guest winemakers and stuff like that. We aren't really doing any of that right now. We are uh, doing once every two weeks either a guest winemaker or a guest. Uh, wine, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't call Mike Sammons a sommelier, but we did uh, tasting with him and uh, Nathan Smith. Um, so we're doing things like that in the future. So I know it's a different time for people to hop on a Zoom call or an Instagram call, but we will be bringing winemakers to you. It'll just be uh, in a different format. All right. Mary, thank you very much. You're welcome. That does it for our Restaurants of the Week. I'll be right back with Banner and Cook. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? I am joined this week by Banner and Cook. He's the pastry chef and owner of Cofeteria in East Downtown. Banner, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. It's nice and uh, sunny. It's supposed to rain, but you know, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to rain all weekend, and then somehow it only rained overnight. So. I'm relearning that like anything below 50% chance of rain means it's not going to rain. So I got to I got to reteach myself how to speak Houston again. I I mean I've decided that what that means is it's going to rain in some part of the city like it'll rain in 20% of the city. Right, Katy, Texas. <laughs> right. Or the Woodlands or Clear Lake, but it like it doesn't mean it's necessarily going to rain in the part of the city that you're in. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I always like to start these conversations at the beginning. So just tell me a little bit about kind of how you got 
involved in the world of professional cooking and, and decided to become a pastry chef? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm a product of child labor. My parents and my aunts and uncles have always owned donut shops and like seafood, like seafood donut shops around like the East End area. We had a Cambodian restaurant on Chartres called the Silver House. Um, my aunt and uncle owned um, Navigation Seafood and Donut right there on Navigation. Um, so as a 14 year old in the summer times, I'm the kid in the back secretly making all the, the fried chicken wings and uh, fried rice to order for two ninety nine. That was the six piece and fried rice. That was it right there. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, I've kind of always been cooking a little bit here and there, dabbling, of course. Um, but I mean, growing up, I was a gymnast and I cheered for about 11 years. So I honestly didn't even see myself going into the food realm until um after college, I didn't make the national mat, and all of a sudden, I'm like, well, I can't be a professional cheerleader, so what does one do? And honestly, I got obsessed with watching, like, the original um, series of Iron Chef, and it was one of those things, my last gymnastics class would end at 9 o'clock, because I was also coaching gymnastics since I was, like, 12 years old, and um, once again, a product of child labor, <laughs> um, but... <laughs> I just I remember getting off at 9:30, getting home by 10 o'clock just to watch the series and just being super amazed that these people can come up with like on the spot, like seven, eight different courses all within an hour and some more desserts. And it was just super phenomenal and very uh, the spectacle of it all was just pretty awe inspiring. But yeah, and then I just kind of, you know, went to culinary school. I went to the Art Institute and um, graduated from there. And then that's when I finally was able to get my foot into the door because no one's going to hire me at a Lupe Trottier or anything like that without any kitchen experience. And so honestly, going to culinary school was one of those things where I got my experience from there and it got my foot into the door. I started at Jean George um, at Bank, uh, Bank Jean George here uh, at the Hotel Icon a long time ago with Caswell. Um, so he and I go back way, way, way back. Um, he knew me as a 19 year old, which is a lot of fun for him. Because uh, I was not the best person then. <laughs> but, you know, as one does, as one does, he makes his round through his kitchen and then um, worked with the the new executive chef from uh, Tiny's and when we were together and, and opened up Zaza together. So she kind of reached out to me. and was like, hey, you know, I know you're in culinary and I know you've been dabbling a lot in pastries. So, you know, you want to you want to give a hand and be a pastry chef. And I was front of the house actually I was working at Papa's Catering and then I also was a server at Papa's Seafood House right out there uh, off of NASA and so um, yeah just kind of been all over the map in hospitality wise but yeah fortunately it was kind of given an opportunity to work at Tiny Boxwoods and really develop that whole program into from breakfast to lunch to dinner time to like opening up number five and everything like that and everything just kind of took wind and um yeah, which is, I was just for the ride, honestly. So, <laughs> so, so what what was it about pastry that kind of drew you to that instead of savory cooking? Um, I think pastries, the technique behind it, and the presumption that like everything had to be so precise and controlled. And I'm definitely like a control freak, so that aspect was like, oh my god, I love it. And then just pastry kitchens are a lot less hot than savory kitchens. <laughs> And I just like, I sweat profusely, like growing up in Houston, I remember like, oh my God, summertime means I got to bring like three shirts with me in the car. So uh, the idea of being somewhere a little bit cooler, but still kind of making really beautiful food and, and uh, just the idea that people end a lot of their meals on pastries. And it's, it's one of those things that um, I've always loved is bringing that like ounce of happiness at the end of the meal. Um, yeah. And then honestly, uh, 
Cook is a surname for someone who's a, a German surname for someone who's a pastry cook. So it's like trying to fight the inevitability, basically. Yeah, it was it was kismet. It was, it was, exactly. <laughs> I mean, pastry, I mean, savory cooking is kind of, you know, salt to taste or, or you know, keep stirring or, you know, whatever. But like, I mean, pastry is chemistry, right? right. If you If you don't weigh things out precisely or... Or you put the wrong thing in, like, it's not going to come out. Well, you know, I always thought that as well. But I think being a savory chef for six years before going into pastries, it not only helped my pastry game because I seasoned more with salt and vanilla than I did than most pastry chefs. And um, my, my things tend to be less sweet than most things, most pastry chefs anyways. And so I kind of think it helps a, lo a lot, actually, to kind of have that savory background and to know about seasoning and to know about... Um, to using sugar as a seasoning as opposed to just like a main base for a recipe or, or whatnot. But I mean, I honestly, like, I think I've been writing my own recipes for about 10 years now. And so it's like one of those things, as long as you learn the step by step, then you can just make stuff up. <laughs> right. So, all right. So you, you worked at Tiny Boxwoods for a while and then Eventually, you left Houston, and you were in what New York and Chicago, I think. Is that is that yeah, correct? Yeah, exactly. So i i left um, I left Houston, and then I moved to New York. I was there for about four and a half years. Um, I worked at a bunch of Mission Star restaurants um, around town, and then I ended up. Uh, one of my biggest positions was pastry sous at Balut Sud with the whole Danielle Balut empire, which was super intense and crazy. Um, but I mean, I loved my first job as the pastry sous at Gotham Bar and Grill. That to me was like the best way to introduce myself to like New York culture and cuisine. Cause I mean, Gotham Bar and Grill is like 35 year old restaurant. That's like the pinnacle of, you know, steakhouses in New York city. And so to run like, and to help run and revamp because we took over that program after um, Deborah Rastakot left. Um, and so that was just like a crazy, awesome challenge. And I worked with Ron Kaprocki for about almost two years. So yeah, it was intense. I went through uh, some really fun learning experiences there and then kind of realized it was the hardest place I've ever worked in. But then at the end of my four and a half years in New York, I was like, that was the best place for sure. <laughs> All right. So so what took you to Chicago after four and a half years in New York? Um, we actually moved to Cincinnati because um, my husband, I met him in New York. He got an opportunity to work on his master's degree at the University of Cincinnati. He's an opera director. Um, and so we kind of... I was pretty much done with New York. Uh, I was done with the lifestyle. I was kind of done with the scene there as well. And so, and I know four years is a very short time to be done with it, but I mean, I always kind of knew New York wasn't gonna be permanent for me. So we ended up moving to Cincinnati. I couldn't handle Cincinnati. I was there for six months and I was like, I gotta get out of here. And so uh, I took myself to Chicago and opened up a, a Marriott hotel um, it's part of like the autograph, the, the boutique hotel line of the, it's called Hotel EMC2. Um, the restaurant is the Albert. So it was kind of like this opportunity to meld my two loves of science and pastries together. And I did like super wet nerd out on like our first few menus. And um, yeah, so definitely the opportunity to kind of combine um, just cosmology with pastries in general and just teaching people how to view pastries a different way. It was a, uh, it's pretty cool. I, I, thoroughly enjoyed it. I actually thoroughly enjoyed Chicago a lot more than I thought I was going to because of the whole weather situation. Um, yeah, it was freezing my tits off there. So, you know. <laughs> so, so, all right. So what brought you back to Houston? Uh, or, or I guess, 
obviously, I guess you, you wanted to open your own place. Why, why come back to Houston to do that instead of staying in Chicago? Oh, man. I mean, Houston is like my first great love. You know, you're, you're never done with your first great love. So uh, I definitely had some things that I wanted to prove back in Houston. I just felt like after whole, the whole Top Chef thing, um, I just wasn't ready to go to the next step and show Houston what I was capable of. Being a self-taught pastry chef during then as well um, was one of those things. I'm like, man, I just don't feel up to par, you know. And so I left and trained and worked at a bunch of places and really got to the point where I felt comfortable with coming back to Houston because I knew I was I was always going to come back. My family's here. My entire support staff is here, um, including friends and family. And uh, yeah, it's just been it's just been kind of really amazing to see the support here in Houston in general. So I never was ever done with Houston. So to come back um, within like the seven years was is really nice. Was it hard to sell your husband on Houston, or was he kind of was he into it? <laughs> Uh, he's from like Wisconsin, so like it's a polar, li literally the polar opposite of Weathers. Um, but he had been working with Houston Grand Opera for years now, and so he had already established like a relationship with the, the opera scene here. He before this whole situation happened with COVID, he was going to direct like an opera in the Opera in the Heights, and then he was going to do another round um, at the Miller Outdoor Theater with HGO as well. So it wasn't that much convincing to have him here in Houston. Um, but I kind of also promised him that he could travel in the summer times if he'd like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you you announced your plans to open Cafeteria with these like really like ooey gooey decadent pictures of like the the baklava croissant and the hot Cheeto croissant. I mean, you know, definitely not like not chocolate chip cookies, which you know you you might have guessed from. Tiny Boxwoods or, or even like conventional vinoiserie. I mean, how did you kind of conceive of that menu and and what kind of statement did you want to make about how your place would be different from maybe some of the other bakeries around town? Oh, for sure. Um, I actually was working on those confections and vinoiseries like when I was in Chicago and I kind of realized like Chicago is definitely not a hot Cheeto city. And I'm thinking like, Oh wait, 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 I'm really like channeling Houston in Chicago. And they were not filling it. Like people were not liking the hot Cheeto croissant at all in Chicago. So it, to me, it was actually kind of a surprise that like, not really a surprise. Cause I knew hot Cheeto was a Houston thing. Like if you go to the grocery now, like literally there's always like two to three bags of hot Cheetos only left in the grocery store. So like, it's a definitely Houston palette thing. Um, and I always knew with my savory background that I wanted to do something that's a little bit more interesting. Um, even with my menus and at Tiny Boxwoods, they were just always a little bit more unconventional, but you also had very approachable things. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm still kind of twisting things up now. We're doing like an elote kolache. Um, we're doing a bunch of like really fun savory things, um, kind of meshing both worlds together. You know, possibilities are pretty endless for me. Right. So how would you kind of describe the menu at Cafeteria? Because it it does have that, like, I can't get a chocolate chip cookie there. Obviously, you can get, you know, a regular croissant or a chocolate croissant, but but you are doing some, some kind of unusual things, too. Oh, for sure. I def definitely would describe Cafeteria as experimental. Um, I think the pastry scene here, um, though, you know, um, ran by some amazing pastry chefs, I think... Um, people are waiting for that type of evolution, like the savory scene that happened, you know, with Justin Yu and Chris Shepard and all those kind of homing that like, 
culinary savory evolution in Houston, which is just so amazing to see. Um, especially like Chris and I did like Star Chefs like a million and a half years ago. Um, I mean, I kind of always knew he would take this like ride to like superstardom, but um, I think that Houston was ready for like a Dominique Enzel type bakery where pastries are a little bit, a lot more fun, a lot more approachable and just like creative, you know? And I think, um, yeah, Houston loves uh, experimental things. At least that's what I'm assuming now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, so sort of pre-coronavirus, you know, you'd been open for a few months. I mean, how was it going? Um, April was pretty hard for us. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> we we hit April and we're like, oh shit, I'm feeling it now. Um, but you know, like I said, the support came through at the beginning of May, and we dug ourselves out of the trenches. Um, and on a positive note, we've kind of been on the positive on profits um, since February. So it's um, we're holding our own, but it's definitely tiring. Um, I catch myself doing 12 to 14 hours a day, which is normal for pastry chefs. But when it's your place, there's just so much more that you have to deal with. Um, like right now, our espresso machine is kind of out. And so I'm here kind of repairing it a little bit and doing a little bit of here. Uh, putting up orders, so uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> say, you know, having your own place is hard, but you're just like, yeah, 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 whatever. I can do it. I can do it. And now I'm just like, damn, I'm ready for my own quarantine. To be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you found, I mean, you've been, I mean, you've been pretty deliberate in kind of your approach to this. You you closed your dining room, obviously, and then you you had kind of pretty strict procedures for. To go pickups, you asked people to order online in advance, and then you you reopened your patio and sort of made people order online, and you would you would bring it to them. I mean, are people have people been pretty respectful about kind of the steps you're taking to keep everybody healthy? Um, I think so. I don't think we've had that much pushback. I mean, obviously there are going to be people who are walking around this neighborhood. It's quite a destination neighborhood anyways, and they don't have a mask on and all that such. In the beginning, we we're really stringent about, you know, not allowing them kind of access to space out of just respect and, um, kind of respectively asking them to go to the back and order outside. Like we have a huge shared backyard that we share with uh, Chapman and Kirby and then a gym as well that, um, will socially distance people out within like 11 tables, which is really nice. Um, we haven't seen that much pushback since I think a lot of people have been more cautious about it and aware that it's not about infringing on your rights, but really just doing a good deed for uh, for someone else basically. And, um, but we'll see, honestly. Um, I'm just kind of like taken aback at like this governor. It's one of those things that just like, man, some clear, concise like leadership would have been really appreciated, you know, during these times. So I'm sure you hear that from everyone. <laughs> I, I mean, you hear it like all the way from kind of David Chang on down, right? That, exactly. That, exactly. That the lack of guidance, the idea that, that the government is just kind of leaving it up to individual businesses to figure this out or, or, you know, right. the industry as a whole to kind of set their procedures. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I mean, you know, there are so many health department regulations that have to be followed so precisely. And then, you know, the response time, it comes time to respond to a global pandemic. And it's just like, well, you know, wear a mask and wash your hands and use hand sanitizer. Exactly. My favorite is uh, Mayor Turner when he's talking to all the criminals. Can you guys just chill? I'm just like, 
Right. Are you for real, dude? Like, are you for real? <laughs> I mean, I think he was kidding, sort of. Right? Oh. But that's like, definitely like a t-shirt in the making, you know? <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's easy when you're term limited, right? You don't have to face you don't have to face re-election, so exactly. that clip's not going to show up in some uh, future campaign commercial. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> um, so as we kind of head into the summer and some of these restrictions start to abate, I mean, how are you feeling? I mean, are you are you optimistic about the future of the bakery? Uh, definitely. I think our numbers for this month have um, climbed up um, drastically. Um, we kind of are sitting at the same numbers that we were before this whole COVID situation. So I see um, a lot of people are venturing out more and they're still cautious with their mask. Um, today we came in around like uh, nine o'clock this morning to kind of do some work and the gym next door was like dude if you only knew the amount of people that are trying to open your door and come in on tuesday mornings i'm like okay we could expand our hours to tuesday morning so you know people are hungry for a brand they're hungry for our um need to take care of everyone else and kind of our services as well because on top of all that i take a lot of my experiences working from these mission stars and really pour that into our service because i think that's what gets people to come back the most is um how we handle people and and how we handle situations um it's just with a lot of finesse and coolness to be quite honest yeah so i mean do you do you have plans to kind of expand what you do i mean can i get can I get a birthday cake from Cafeteria? I mean, I, I don't feel like I haven't seen anything like that, like on your Instagram yet. Oh, yeah. I mean, so honestly, I really don't like doing cakes, but <laughs> that's something I'm going to have to get over um, because we, I actually have done a few cakes for people around this neighborhood who've asked for it and inquired about it. So it's just one of those like secret item menus. And I'm, I'm OK with not like putting my whole spiel out there and having people feel like we're doing things just for them. Like we have a lady who comes in and she gets croissants and we don't normally serve butter and jam with it but for her we will and so we'll always make like a little like pint of jam for somebody and so you know her name is pam so we call her jammy jammy pam so when she comes in we have her jam ready and her butter for her croissant and that's that and so it's just one of those things um if you ask for it i definitely 99 percent will say yes okay so i can ask for the pam jam the next time i come to the bakery absolutely <laughs> <laughs> And then you've had some fun stuff with savory too. You're doing fried chicken. You've got that that uh, beef uh, kalachi. I mean, do you do you kind of want to expand some of those offerings too? Oh, for sure. Like before this whole COVID thing happened, so April fifteenth. Uh, 14th through the 16th is Cambodian New Year's and we were actually planning on doing like a whole like Cambodian dinner just to kind of um, herald in like the New Year's and my mom was going to cook like she got her food handlers license and everything so she could cook back here and really showcase because my whole point is to slowly meld pastries with Cambodian food. Um, people are just so unaware of what Cambodian food really is and like the differentiations between Cambodian, Vietnamese, and Chinese. And to be honest, I'm all three. So like, I'm okay to do like all three cuisines through here. Um, so, you know, the beef focaccia isn't gonna stop there. Like we're being, we're gonna, we wanna introduce people to like, in it with like Cambodian food, like krung, which is like, um, a uh, stir fry with like lemongrass and kefir lime leaves, lots of garlic, chilies, and um, and all that stuff is like growing in my mom's backyard. So it's like the taste of stuff that that where I'm from basically, and um, and I just think that's part of our brand. I like I like transparency. I like people to see all my mistakes and all my achievements all at the same time, and kind of uh, feel like they know me like that, you know. And I'm okay with that because I've always been kind of an open book. 
a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so count me as one of those people who doesn't know the difference between Cambodian food versus Vietnamese food versus Chinese food. So so what's the what's the two minute explanation for kind of what makes Cambodian food distinct from some of the neighboring countries? Oh, man. Um, I guess the best explanation, it, it's very authentic in the sense of like the flavors are in your face, very flavor forward. Um, there are like five different types of Cambodian, like Cambodian food kind of breaks out into like five different types of cuisine. You have your ka, your krung, you have your machus, which is like sour stuff. Then you have your stir fries and then you have your soups. So it's, it's, um, it's broken down into like more of ingredients that you use and in that ingredients kind of sits where the category is. So, um, like I remember this super funny story. My aunt makes, um, Bahok, which is like the super um, authentic fermented fish. It's like basically fish sauce before it gets clarified and then like end up in a supermarket. So you just take fish and you just salt it and you just let it sit in barrels for like years and years and years um, and preferably outside. And so one time my grandma was baking it and then the, uh, the neighbors upstairs at the apartment complex called the cops because they thought it was like decomposing like a person dying down there. And so they went through her entire house. She's like pointing at that bro. She's like, food, food. And in reality, they open it up like, oh my God, what is that? And then she like makes something out of it and like it's super delicious. So it's <laughs> so she, like, she makes them like egg rolls or something. And they're like, okay, we get it. Exactly, exactly. Usually it's like used for dips and like for sauces and everything. Like, oh, okay, okay, that's fine, that's fine. As long as it's not like decomposing body, but it smells uh, authentic is the word I like to use. <laughs> Pungent is the word that comes to mind. Exactly. Especially on a summer day, like my aunt has a barrel of Bahok right now in her backyard because she goes fishing in Galveston and she does it like from start to finish. She goes, catches the fishes in the morning, cleans them out, salts them in the sun, puts them and lets them age. And it's just like, it's very pungent. But like, if you do it correctly, it's actually smooth. It's like anchovies in a sense that the way Italians would use, but like with your foot in it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> all right so then the other thing I, I obviously i have to ask you about your time on top chef you you were on uh one of the seasons of just desserts do you do you want to do more reality tv i mean i know that was a long time ago if i'm going to do reality tv i'm going to be judging like i don't want to be contested anymore that stuff is so tiring like by the time i had finished filming and i was like okay cool i'm not the first one eliminated let me go now I was ready to leave. I couldn't poop. I couldn't eat correctly. Like there was just like all sorts of like, you know, stuff building up in my gullet that I was just ready to release. And the only way I knew how to do that was to like get kicked off. So honestly, these like month long air shows, nah, probably not again. I did chops like a couple years ago in New York, but that was only like one day. Um, I'm horrible at like recapping episodes with like present tenses during like things that happened like, you know, an hour before whatever. And so it's just incredibly frustrating for me. And if I were to ever do a reality show again, it would definitely be as a judge. Um, I think I've earned it enough. <laughs> is there is there something you aspire? Do you, do you have a dream judging opportunity? I mean, it would be nice to like have a whole 360 moment and go back on chops. That would be great and judge that instead, you know. Um, I'm really good friends with uh, Zach Young, who's like, the Food Network queen right now, which she's just phenomenal. He's an amazing person. Um, I met him when I was in New York. Um, super hilarious. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely envy his career a little bit. Yeah. 
isn't nice. nice. All right. Well, Vanerin, that that brings me uh, mostly to the end of my questions, unless there is something you want to discuss that I have not asked you about. Oh, man, that pretty much recaps my whole existence in Houston right now. But yeah, I mean, I think things are, I'm a pretty optimistic person. I feel like, you know, um, things will start picking up here in Houston and cafeteria will definitely get back to uh, to where we were um, before everything happened. But, you know, that's a true testament to any brand is kind of seeing what's going to happen when pandemic <laughs> goes, you know, comes up and then uh, it's, it's how you handle it and how strong your brand is. And I think you've kind of proven throughout this whole existence here that uh, cafeteria is here to stay. And uh, I'm excited for its future in Houston. Well, and if, if I haven't said it explicitly either on the show previously or, or uh, to you, I mean, you know, I, I have a definite sweet tooth. I, I spread my pastry dollars around to various <laughs> uh, options around the city. Uh, your stuff is really delicious. That, that double thick, like very chewy chocolate chip cookie is, is so yummy. And I am a little bit obsessed with that baklava croissant uh, in the sense that if I, if I see it in the pastry case, it's like, okay, I'm definitely getting that. And then it's just a question of like, what else am I getting? Yeah, definitely. I mean, who knows? Maybe you'll see that in like your local grocery store pretty soon. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's quite there's a lot of opportunities here in Houston, so I'm just kind of uh, riding the ride, to be quite honest. So, all right. Well, before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Vanner and Cook, what is your favorite ingredient? Ooh, my favorite ingredient is black sesame. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Oh my god! First band I ever saw in concert, best concert hands down. Third row away, Spice Girls with Jerry with Ginger Spice in it. It was I was the gayest sixth grader, and it was just phenomenal. I just come into like my own, and um, yeah, nothing beats that for sure. That that is a great answer. I think that's that's our first <laughs> in in almost 150 episodes. I think that's the first Spice Girls. So that that's perfect. <laughs> uh, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive through. Oh, does it have to be a chain? No, it just has to have a drive. Oh, Champ Burger, hands down. Solid. So, so good. All right. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Oh, I would say Olajuwon. Hakeem the Dream. And then finally, when you go to a pizzeria for the first time, what are your go-to toppings? Ooh, my go-to toppings. Mmm, Sorpresada, if they have it. Definitely. All right. Give us the website and social media and all that for Cafeteria. Absolutely. Check us out, Cafeteria, www.cafeteria.com. Our Instagram is at Cafeteria, K-O-F-F-E-T-E-R-I-A. Um, otherwise, you know, see you in East Downtown. Bannerin, thank you so much. Absolutely, sir. Take care. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.